Welcome, lovely listeners. Today I bring you five Korean folktales written in 1913. Translated from the Korean folktale book Imps, Ghosts, and Fairies, with author's notes from Im Bang. The stories I have are just the beginning of these kinds of tales. There are so, so many of them and really widely varied in the content they cover. And as I was reading them, they strike me as a more magically focused set of tales and lean to spirit energy in their tales more often than not, which I found really interesting. The Japanese and Irish lore that I've read in the past focus heavily on morals and a strong teaching or learning experience in their tales. These Korean folk tales are more focused on narrative and somewhat theatrical. So in your tales today, you'll have magic snakes, hobgoblins doing strange things with humans, mutangs, witches, and so much more, mates. Now, a huge thank you to my white tea warlords, Magic Matthew J. Bauer, Melodious Maya, and Daring Divided by Zero. You champions are just fantastic. Fantastic! Supporting the show in ways that takes me back every episode. Thank you so, so much. Every amount on my Patreon, because of you, helps the show grow and progress. And of course, my Earl Grey Enforcers, Chad Warren, Just Heather, Lee Bauer, Lorraine Crisanto, Mace Joe, Paige Marcini, Peter Raffaelli, and Michelangelo Yacone. Thank you for keeping the lights on and the show's blood pumping. You guys and gals are just brilliant. Now, pour yourself the loveliest of body char tea, recline into something soft, and take a listen to some definitely unique tales. 10,000 Devils Han Chun Kyum was the son of a provincial secretary. He matriculated in the year 1579 and graduated in 1586. He received the last wishes of King Son Zhou and sat by his side taking notes for seven hours. From 1608 to 1623, he was Generalissimo of the army and later was raised to the rank of prince. A certain prince of Han of Chungchong province had a distant relative who was an uncouth countryman living in extreme poverty. This relative came to visit him from time to time. Han pitied his cold and hungry condition, gave him clothes to wear, and shared his food, urging him to stay and to prolong his visit often into several months. He felt sorry for him, but disliked his uncouthness and stupidity. On one of these visits, the poor relation suddenly announced his intention to return home. Although the New Year season was just at hand, Han urged him to remain. It would be better for you to be comfortably housed at my home, eating cake and soup and enjoying quiet sleep, rather than riding through wind and weather at this season of year. He said at first he would have to go, until his host so insistently urged him to stay, that at last he yielded and gave consent. At New Year's Eve, he remarked to Prince Han, I am a professor of a peculiar kind of magic, by which I have under my control all manner of evil genie. And New Year is the season at which I will call them up, run over their names, and inspect them. If I do not do so, I should lose control altogether, and there would follow no end of trouble among mortals. 
It is a matter of no small moment, and that is why I wish to go. Since, however, you have detained me, I shall have to call them up in your excellency's house and look them over. I hope you will not object. Han was greatly astonished and alarmed, but gave his consent. The poor relation went on to say further, This is an extremely important matter, and I would like to have for it your central guest hall. Han consented to this also. So that night, they washed the floors and scoured them clean. The relation also sat himself with all dignity facing the south, while Prince Han took up his station on the outside prepared to spy. Soon he saw a startling variety of demons crushing in at the door, horrible in appearance and awesome of manner. They lined up one after another, and still another, and another, till they filled the entire court, each bowing as he came before the master, who, at this point, drew out a book, opened it before him, and began calling off the names. Demon guards who stood by the threshold repeated the call and checked off the names just as they do in a government yamen. For the second watch, it went on till the fifth of the morning. Han remarked, It was indeed no lie when he told me. Ten thousand devils. One latecomer arrived after the marking was over, and still another came climbing over the wall. The man ordered them to be arrested, and inquiry made of them under the paddle. The late arrival said, I really have had a hard time of it of late to live, and so was obliged, in order to find anything, to inject smallpox into the home of a scholar who lives in Yongnam. It is a long way off, and so I have arrived too late for the roll call. A serious fault indeed, I confess. The one who climbed the wall said, I too have known wanton hunger, and so had to insert a little typhus into the family of a gentleman who lives in Gyeongkyu. But hearing that roll call was due, I came helter-skelter, fearing lest I should arrive too late, and so climb the wall, which was indeed a sin. The man then, in a loud voice, rated them soundly, saying, These devils have disobeyed my orders, caused disease and sinned grievously. Worse than everything, they have climbed the wall of a high official's house. He ordered a hundred blows to be given them with the paddle, the kangu to be put on, and to have them locked fast in prison. Then, calling the others to him, he said, Do not spread disease! Do you understand? Three times he ordered it, and five times he repeated it. Then they were all dismissed. The crowd of devils lined off before him, taking their departure and crushing out through the gate with no end of noise and confusion. After a long time, they had all disappeared. Prince Han, looking on during this time, saw the man now seated alone in the hall. It was quiet, and all had vanished. The cocks crew and morning came. Han was astonished above measure, and asked as to the law that governed such work as this. The poor relation said in reply, When I was young, I studied in a monastery in the mountains. In that monastery was an old priest who had a most peculiar countenance, a man feeble and ready to die, he seemed. All the priests made sport of him and treated him with contempt, 
I alone had pity on his age, and often gave him of my food, and always treated him kindly. One evening, when the moon was bright, the old priest said to me, There is a cave behind this monastery, from which a beautiful view may be had. Will you not come with me and share it? I went with him, and when we crossed the ridge of the hills, into the stillness of the night, he drew a book from his breast and gave it to me, saying, I, who am old and ready to die, have here a great secret, which I have long since wished to pass unto someone worthy. I have traveled over the wide length of Korea, and have never found the man till now I meet you, and my heart is satisfied. So please, receive it. I opened the book and found it a catalogue list of devils, with magic writing interspersed and an explanation of the laws that govern the spirit world. The old priest wrote out one magical recipe, and having set fire to it, countless devils at once assembled, at which I was greatly alarmed. He then sat with me and called over the names one after the other, and said to the devils, I am an old man now, and am going away and so am about to put you under the care of this young man. Obey him, and all will be well. I already had the book, and so called them to me, read out the new orders, and dismissed them. The old priest and I returned to the temple, and went to sleep. I awoke early next morning and went to call on him, but he was gone. Thus I came into possession of the magic art, and have possessed it for a score of years and more. What the world knows nothing of, I have thus made known to your excellency. Hun was astonished beyond measure, and asked, May I also not come into possession of this most wonderful gift? The man replied, Your excellency has great ability and can do wonderful things, but the possessor of this craft must be one poor and despised and of no account. For you, a minister, it would never do. The next day he left suddenly, and returned no more. Han sent a servant with a message to him. The servant, with great difficulty, at last found him alone among a thousand mountain peaks, living in a little straw hut, no bigger than a cockle shell. No neighbors were there, nor any one beside. He called him, but he refused to come. He sent another messenger to invite him, but he had moved away, and no trace of him was left. And so ends the story of the Thousand Devils. The Honest Witch Song Sang-in graduated in 1601. He was just a man and feared by the dishonest element of the court. In 1605 he graduated and became a provincial governor. He nearly lost his life in the disturbance of the reign of King Kuang Hai, and was exiled to Quail Part for a period of ten years. But in the spring of 1623, he was recalled, and this story shared. There was a Korean once called Sung Sang-in, whose mind was upright and whose spirit was true. He hated witches with all his might, and regarded them as deceivers of the people. By their so-called prayers, 
said he. They devour the people's goods. There is no limit to their foolishness and extravagance that accompanies them. This doctrine of theirs is all nonsense. Would that I could rid the earth of them and wipe out their names forever. Sometime later, Sung was appointed magistrate of Namwon County in Chula province. On his arrival, he issued the following order. If any witch is found in this county, let her be beaten to death. The whole place was thoroughly spied upon that all the witches made their escape to other prefectures. The magistrate thought, now we are rid of them, and that ends the matter of this county at any rate. On a certain day, he went out for a walk and rested for a time at Quang Han Pavilion. As he looked out of his koan advantage, he saw a woman approaching on horseback with a witch's drum on her head. He looked intently to make sure, and to his astonishment, he saw that she was indeed a Mutang witch. He sent a Yaman runner to have her arrested, and when she was brought before him, he asked, Are you a Mutang? She replied, Yes, I am. Then, said he, You do not know of the official order issued. Oh yes, I heard of it, was her reply. He then asked, Are you not afraid to die? That you stay here in this county? The Mutong bowed and made answer, I have a matter of complaint to put before you, Excellency, to be put right. Please take note of it and grant my request. It is this. There are true Mutangs and false Mutangs. False Mutangs ought to be killed. But you would not kill an honest Mutang, would you? Your orders pertain to false Mutangs. I do not understand them as pertaining to those who are true. I am an honest Mutang. I knew you would not kill me, so I remained here in peace. The magistrate asked, How do you know that there are honest Mutangs? The woman replied, Let's put the matter to the test and see. If I am not proven honest, let me die. Very well, said the magistrate. But can you really make good? And do you truly know how to call back departed spirits? The Mutang answered, I can. The magistrate suddenly thought of an intimate friend who had been dead for some time, and he said to her, I have a friend of such and such rank and soul. Can you call his spirit back to me? The Mutang replied, Let me do so, but first, you must prepare food with wine and serve it properly. The magistrate thought for a moment and then said to himself, Hmm... It is a serious matter to take a person's life. Let me find out first if she is true or not, and then decide. So he had the food brought. The Mutang said also, I want a suit of your clothes too, please. This was brought, and she spread her mat in the courtyard, placed the food in order, donned the dress, and so made all preliminary arrangements. She then lifted her eyes towards heaven and uttered the strange magic sounds by which spirits are called, meanwhile shaking a tinkling bell. In a little she turned and said, I've come. Then she began telling the sad story of his sickness.
and death and their separation. She reminded the magistrate of how they had played together, and of things that had happened when they were at school at their lessons, of the difficulties they had met in the examinations, of experiences that had come to them during their terms of office. She told secrets that they had confided to each other as intimate friends, and many matters most definitely that only the two knew. Not a single mistake did she make, but told the truth in every detail. The magistrate, when he heard these things, began to cry, saying, The soul of my friend is really present. I can no longer doubt or deny it. Then he ordered the choicest fare possible to be prepared as a sacrifice to his friend. In a little, the friend bade him farewell and took his departure. The magistrate said, Alas, I thought Mutangs were a brood of liars, but now I know that there are true Mutangs as well as false. He gave her rich rewards, sent her away in safety, recalled his order against witches, and refrained from any matters pertaining to them from ever after. And so ends The Honest Witch. An Encounter with a Hobgoblin I got myself into trouble in the year Pyong Sin, and was locked up. A military man by the name of Chui Won So, who was captain of the guard, was involved in it, and locked up as well. We often met in prison and whiled away the hours talking together. On a certain day, the talk turned to goblins, when Captain Chui said, When I was young, I met with a hobgoblin, which, by the fraction of a hair, almost cost my life. A strange case indeed. I had originally no home in Seoul, but hearing of a vacant place in Belttown, I made application and got it. We went there, my father and the rest of the family occupying the inner quarters, while I lived in the front room. One night late, when I was half asleep, the door suddenly opened, and a woman came in and stood just before the lamp. I saw her clearly, and knew that she was from the home of a scholar friend, for I had seen her before, and had been greatly attracted by her beauty, but had never had a chance to meet her. Seeing her enter the room thus, I greeted her gladly, but she made no reply. I arose to take her by the hand, when she began walking backwards, so that my hand never reached her. I rushed towards her, but she hastened her backwards pace, so that she eluded me. We reached the gate, which she opened with a rear kick, and I followed on after, till she suddenly disappeared. I searched on all sides, but not a trace was there of her. I thought she had merely hidden herself, and never dreamed of anything else. On the next night, she came again and stood before the lamp, just as she had done the night previous. I got up again and tried to take hold of her, but again she began to peculiar pace backwards, till she passed out at the gate, and disappeared just as she had done the day before. I was once more surprised and disappointed, but did not think of her being a hobgoblin. A few days later, at night I had lain down, when suddenly there was a sound of crackling paper overhead from above the ceiling. A forbidding, creepy sound it seemed in the midnight. A moment later, a curtain was let down that divided the room into two parts. Again, 
Later, a large fire of coals descended right in front of me, while an immense heat filled the place. Where I was seemed all on fire, with no way of escape possible. In terror for my life, I knew not what to do. On the first cock crow of morning, the noise ceased. The curtain went up, and the fire of coals was gone. The place was as though swept with a broom, so clean from every trace of what had happened. The following night I was again alone, but had not yet undressed or lain down, when a great stout man suddenly opened the door and came in. He had on his head a soldier's felt hat, and on his body a blue tunic like one of the underlings of the Amen. He took hold of me and tried to drag me out. I was then young and vigorous and had no intention of yielding to him, so we entered on a tussle. The moon was bright and the night clear, but I, unable to hold my own, was pulled out into the court. He lifted me up and swung me around and round, then went up to the highest terrace and threw me down, so that I was terribly stunned. He stood in front of me and kept me a prisoner. There was a garden to the rear of the house, and a wall round it. I looked, and within the wall were a dozen or so of people. They were all dressed in military hats and coats, and they kept shouting out, Don't, Don't hurt him! Don't, Don't hurt him. him! The man that mishandled me, however, said in reply, It's, it's none, none of your business. business. None of your business. But they still kept up the cry, Don't, Don't hurt him! Don't hurt him! And he, on the other hand, cried, Never you mind! None of your business! They shouted. They then shouted, the man is a gentleman of military class. Do not hurt him. The fellow merely said in reply, Even though he is, it's none of your business. So he took me by the two hands and flung me up into the air, till I went halfway and more to heaven. Then in my fall, I went shooting past Kyongkyu province, past Chung Chong, and at last fell to the ground in Chula. In my flight through space, I saw all the county towns of the three provinces as clear as day. Again in Chula he tossed me up once more again. I went shooting up into the sky and falling northward, till I found myself at home, lying stupefied below the veranda terrace. Once more I could hear the voices of the group in the garden, Don't hurt him! Hurt him! But the man said, None of your business! Your business! He took me up once more and flung me up again, and away I went speeding off the chawler and back I came again two or three times in all. Then one of the group in the garden came forward, took my tormentor by the hand, and led him away. They all met for a little talk and laughed over the matter, then scattered and then were gone, so that they were not seen again. I lay motionless at the foot of the terrace till the following morning, when my father found me and had taken me in hand and cared for. So that I came to and we all left the haunted house, never to go back. Author's note. There are various reasons by which a place may be denominated a haunted house. The fact that there are hobgoblins in it does make it haunted. If a good or superior man enters such a place, the goblins move away, and no word of being haunted will be heard. Choi saw the goblin and was greatly injured. I understand that it is not only a question of men fearing the goblins, but they also fear men. The fact that there are so few people that they fear is the saddest case of all. 
Choi was afraid of the goblins. That is why they troubled him. And so ends the story, an encounter with a hobgoblin. The Snake's Revenge There lived in ancient days an archer, whose home was near the Watergate of Song. He was a man of great strength and famous for his valour. Watergate has reference to a hole under the city wall, by which the waters of the Grand Canal find their exit. In it are iron pickets to prevent people's entering or departing by that way. On a certain afternoon when this military officer was taking a walk, a great snake was seen making its way by means of the Watergate. The snake's head had already passed between the bars, but its body, being larger, could not get through. So there it was, held fast. The soldier drew an arrow and, fitting it into the string, shot the snake in the head. Its head being fatally injured, the creature died. The archer then drew it out, pounded it into a pulp and left it. A little time later, the man's wife conceived and bore a son. From the first day, the child was afraid of its father, and when it saw him it used to cry and seem gratefully frightened. As it grew, it hated the sight of its father more and more. The man became suspicious of this, and so, instead of loving his son, he grew to dislike him. On a certain day, when there was just the two of them in the room, the officer lay down to have a midday siesta, covering his face with his sleeve, but all the while keeping his eye on the boy to see what he would do. The child glared at his father, and thinking him asleep, got a knife and made a thrust at him. The man jumped, grabbed the knife, and then with a club gave the boy a blow that left him dead on the spot. He pounded him into a pulp, left him, and went away. The mother, however in tears, covered the little form with a quilt and prepared for its burial. In a little the quilt began to move, and she in alarm raised to see what had happened, when lo, beneath it the child was gone, and there lay coiled a huge snake instead. The mother jumped back in fear, left the room, and did not enter again. When evening came, the husband returned and heard the dreadful story from his wife. He went in and looked, and now all had metamorphosed into a huge snake. On the head of it was the scar mark of the arrow that he had shot. He said to the snake, You and I were originally not enemies. I therefore did wrong in shooting you as I did. But your intention to take revenge through becoming my son was a horrible deed. Such a thing as this is proof that my suspicions of you were right and just. You became my son in order to kill me, your father. Why, therefore, should I not in my turn kill you? If you attempt it again, it will certainly end in my taking your life. You have already had your revenge, and have once more transmigrated into your original shape. Let us drop the past and be friends from now on. What do you say? He repeated this over and urged his proposals, while the snake with bowed head seemed to listen intently. He then opened the door and said, Now you may go as you please. The snake then departed, making straight for the water gate, and passed out between the bars. It did not again appear. Author's note, Man is a spiritual being, and different from all other created things, and though a snake has power of venom, 
it is still an insignificant thing compared with a man. The snake died and by means of transmigration of its soul, took its revenge. Man dies? Never heard that he can transmigrate as the snake did. Why is it that though a spiritual being he is unable to do what beasts do? I have seen many innocent men killed, but not one of them has ever returned to take his revenge on the lawless one who did it. And so I wonder more than ever over these stories, over the snake. The superior man knowing nothing of the law that governs these things is a regret to me. And so ends the story, The Snake's Revenge. The Temple to the God of War Yi Hang Bok When he was a child, a blind fortune teller came and cast his future saying, This boy will be very great indeed. At seven years of age, his father gave him for subject to write a verse on the harp and the sword. And he wrote, The sword pertains to the hand of the warrior, and the harp to the music of the ancients. At eight, he took the subject of the willow before the door, and wrote, The east wind brushes the brow of the cliff, and the willow on the edge nods fresh and green. On seeing a picture of a great banquet among the fierce Turks of Central Asia, he wrote thus, The hunt is off in the wild dark hills, and the moon is cold and grey, while the tramping feet of a thousand horse ring on the frosty way. In the tents of the Turk the music thrills, and the wine cups clink for joy. Mid the noise of the dancer's savage tread, and the lilt of the wild hort boy. At twelve years of age, he was proud, we are told, and haughty. He dressed well, and was envied by the poorer lad of the place, and once he took off his coat, and gave it to a boy who was in envy of him. He gave his shoes as well, and came back barefoot. His mother, wishing to know his mind in the matter, pretended to reprimand him. But he replied, saying, Mother, when others wanted it so, how could I refuse giving? Upon hearing this, his mother pondered these things in her heart. When he was fifteen, he was strong and well-built, and liked vigorous exercise. And in that, he was a noted wrestler, and skillful at shuttlecock. His mother, however, frowned upon these things, saying that they were not dignified. So he gave them up and confined his attention to literary studies, graduating at 25 years of age. In 1592, during the Japanese war, when the king escaped to Iuju, Yihang Bok went with him in his flight. And there, he met the Chinese Ming representative, who said in surprise to his majesty, Do you mean to tell me that you have men in Chosen, like Yihang Bok, lived to see the troubles in the reign of the wicked Kuang Hai, and at last went into exile to Puk Chong? When he crossed the Iron Pass near Wonsan, he wrote, From the giddy height of the Iron Peak, I call on the passing cloud, to take up a lonely exile's tears in the folds of its feathery shroud, and drop them as rain on the palace gates, on the king and his shameless crowd. And from this, a story was born. During the Japanese war in the reign of Sonjo, the Ming sent a great army that came east dragged out the enemy and restored peace. At that time, the general of the Mings informed his Korean majesty that the victory was due to the help of Kwan, the god of war. This being the case, 
said he, you ought not to continue without temples in which to express your gratitude to him. So they built him houses of worship and offered him sacrifice. The temples built were one to the south and one to the east of the city. In examining sites for these, they could not agree on the one to the south. Some wanted it near the wall and some farther away. At that time, an official called Yi Hang Bok was in charge of the conference. On a certain day when Yi was at home, a military officer called and wished to see him. Ordering him in, he found him a great strapping fellow, splendidly built. His request was that Yi should send out all his retainers till he talked to him privately. They were sent out, and the stranger gave him message. After he had finished, he said goodbye and left. Yi had at that time an old friend stopping with him. When he came in, he noticed that the face of the master had a very peculiar expression, and asked him the reason of it. Yi made no reply at first, but later told his friend that a very extraordinary thing had happened. The military man who had come and called was none other than a messenger of the god of war. His coming, too, was on account of their not yet having decided in regard to the site for the temple. He came, said Yi, to show me where it ought to be. He urged that it was not a matter of a time only, but for the eternities to come. If we did not get it right, the god of war will find no peace. I told him in reply that I would do my best. Was this not strange? The friend who heard this was greatly exercised, but Yi warned him not to repeat it to anyone. Yi used all his efforts, and at last, the building was placed on the approved site where it now stands. And this is the tale of the Temple to the God of War. Well, those tales were definitely different, right? Do you get what I mean how these tales are far more theatrical, character-focused and narrative-driven than the other cultural folktales. If you enjoyed these tales, let me know. I'll have some more coming in if you enjoyed them, mates. And I can't wait myself to sink into more folktales from Japan, Ireland, Scotland, and why not Korea? Mates, if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy the show, hop onto iTunes, take a couple of seconds and leave a review. If you can leave your name as well, I'd love to read your review out. The best part of this podcast for me is you. I love hearing from listeners and getting in touch with those that enjoy the same kind of tales. So don't hesitate to reach out to me via email. Stories, fables, ghostly tales at gmail.com and leave a message. Now mates, have a safe and wonderful weekend. And as always, till next, we meet.